Hello again, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thank you so much for joining us. We have another exciting episode coming your way, this time with the incomparable singer-songwriter Barry Greenfield, perhaps best known for his 1972 number one single, New York is Closed Tonight. Throughout his career, Barry has worked with an incredible array of internationally acclaimed artists including Supertramp, Frank Zappa, John Lee Hooker, Steve Martin, Cheech and Chong, the Pointer Sisters, and many, many others. Throughout his 45-year musical career, he's never stopped writing or performing and continues to partner with some of the industry's best musical talent. And today, Barry joins us from his home in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia to look back on his exciting career in the music industry and bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Barry, there you are. Here I am. We're all good. So let's let's dive right into this. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this into a different view for me. There we go. Much better. So Barry, we got it. <laughs> we we met just before COVID hit. Yeah, we met about I'm gonna say a week and a half, two weeks before COVID hit. Uh, I was in Victoria visiting my friend John Shields, and I had the courage to phone you up to meet for coffee to discuss music. So it was John you were meeting when I met with you. Yeah, so you were first and John was second. Unbelievable. Yeah, I left you to meet John. And now I know John, John and I are partners in this show. And, yeah, and it's you know, a small world. he's our producer. Like unbelievable. Mick, there are no accidents, Mick. Yeah, I suppose not. I suppose not. And your life is full of not accidents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm also very proactive and uh, you take chances. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to get into that. I mean, anybody who met John Lennon and was in the same room with him is worthy of being talked to on any level. We'll get to that pretty soon. So, you, you're okay, I always thought you were born in Zimbabwe, but you were born in the UK. No, I'm a pure Manchester musician, and I'm the Hollies, I'm the King, I'm 10CC, I'm Herman's Hermits, I'm Oasis. I'm, I'm totally Manchester. I'm born and bred, and I still feel Manchester. Okay, so when did you, but you did move to uh, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. I was uh, seven years old and extremely happy uh, on my bike with my mates uh, in Manchester in a pretty low-class area called Cheatham Hill. And my dad, like so many white uh, English people in 1958, emigrated. And uh, he decided to go to, of all places, Rhodesia. In those days, white English people fled for um, Rhodesia, uh, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. They were the four points that they went. And so we went to uh, Zimbabwe, which was called Rhodesia back then, when I was seven years old, and I was there until I was 13. And what was the calling of Rhodesia? What would make the move there? I could see Canada, perhaps, but... You'd have to ask him, and I can't... I don't know. It seems so insane, but it, in some ways it was an act of courage, and in some ways it was just hard to explain. And what, what did he do when he was there? He was a professional gambler. He was, um, uh, eventually he became a bookmaker, which is a dude who st stands a, on a racetrack behind a wooden sort of like stand-up thing and makes bets on races for people. He was a bookie. And all the times we've talked, I did not know that. Yeah, my dad and I are diametrically opposite. I'm a very uh, straight down the middle balanced financial planner and he's a, a, a rascal. So possibly you took after your mom. 100%. Everything yeah. about me is my mom, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, mate. <laughs> so you, okay, so, so when you went to, so, okay, let's talk about your exposure to music. 
Were you exposed to music before you went there or after, during? Well, before I went there, I was exposed to Petula Clark. I was three years old and I got so erotically charged by Petula Clark that I had to hide behind uh, our living room chair. Couldn't bear to look at her. I was so excited. Um, <laughs> I thought her voice was incredible. This, I think, is pre-downtown days, I think. Oh, yeah, that would have been ten, probably 10 years before downtown. Okay, then I been Tony Hatch, you're right. And then I remember Frankie Vaughan, who sang a song called Green Door, which was like an R&B song. He was a white guy, too, and um, he was like a, an English version of... Um, well, not really Elvis, but that sort of thing, Frankie Vaughan. And then I have no recollections until the streets of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, where on almost every third corner, there'd be a, an African with a three-string, $6 guitar playing uh, the music that Paul Simon borrowed for, for Graceland, that CFG sort of rhythm thing. And I remember just falling in love with that African sound. That was my real first introduction to music was the African music in the street, which was no vocals. And then I heard Please Please Me uh, on a Saturday morning and everything changed with Please Please Me. And I remember it exactly how it happened. Um, in Rhodesia, they didn't like rock and roll because it was considered uh, black music. And so they wouldn't give you rock and roll. They only gave you uh, Percy Faith and Lawrence Welk and Ferranti and Teicher. But every Saturday from 12.30 to 1, they had a rock and roll show. And it was a female DJ. And the last song she played at 5 to 12, 5 to 1, excuse me, was the number one song on the BBC that week. And it was Please Please Me. And that was the day that changed my life. That was the first time you'd heard the Beatles. And you were yeah. still in Zimbabwe. Yes. So when did you? So when did you move from Zimbabwe back to the UK, or did you? Well, even, yes, I did. It's even more complicated. But another reason why I'm sitting talking to Bella V. Um, when I was twelve, I went to a very um, corporal punishment orientated school that was not only corporal punishment orientated but anti-Semitic. So I was beaten profusely uh, for most of the year. And for was, for being Jewish. For lots of things, but, you know, lots of things. Who, who can tell why? Three teachers, very, very consistently. So I never finished that grade, which was grade seven. I ran away uh, and then came back and then insisted that I moved to England. So I was just turned 13 by about four days. And I left my mom and my dad and my sister. And I flew to England to live with my aunt. It was 1963, December. And I arrived in England, and I spent two years there going to grammar school, living with, with my Auntie Sadie. And every day we had Top of the Pops, uh, Thank You Lucky Stars, Ready Steady Go, uh, Jukebox Jewelry, all of the Beatles, all of the Kinks, all of the Pretty Things, all of the Foremost, all of the Mersey Beats, all of the English bands. And they became my family because my mom and my dad and my sister were... 10,000 miles away. So I fell in love with these bands. And I think at age 70, talking to Delevee, I can understand it. It feels like family to me, that music. And that's so, why I learned about music. So that was all BBC produced as well, right? Yeah, it was the top of the pops. Go to YouTube and watch them. Wow. That's unbelievable. I mean, I, that's, that's the weird thing about, or the wonderful thing about England, 
is that they really, really supported their artists, it seems. I just, yes. finished, a, I just finished a book by Glenn Johns, and it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. Um, another thing that people don't quite grasp, well, maybe they do, but I don't think they do, is the Beatles were just a band. Like, it was with Beatlemania and, and the New York and the, and the 64 trip to the States that they became the phenomenon. But back when I was there for their, for their first year of the Beatles with um, Long Tall Sally and um, um, Do You Want to Know a Secret, those songs, they were just a band the same as the Hollies, the same as Dave Clark Five, the same as the Mersey Beats. They weren't, they weren't that much more alien. They were just another very, they were the best band, but on one Monday, you'd say, oh, the Hollies are my favorite band. And then on Wednesday, you'd love Dead End Streets. So it'd be the Kinks. So it wasn't like the Beatles were as dominant as they seemed to be 50 years down the road. Right. And so, so to back up a bit, so you heard the Beatles in Zimbabwe, and you must have moved to England shortly after that. Weeks, weeks after. Yeah, because I mean, it's the timeline, because you say 63. Now, we didn't hear in North America until February 9th, 1964. That's when North America landed the Beatles at the Ed Sullivan Show. That was the pivotal day for every musician I know Yeah. You know, in our age group. And so when you get, um, so, but 63 was when Please Please Me would have hit in yeah. uh, England, and before that was uh, "Love Me Do," which did number seventeen. Yeah, "Love Me Do." Please, please, was no, a number one. Yeah, I never heard "Love Me Do" until many, many, many months later. Uh, but "Please, Please Me" had the, the thing that "Love Me Do" didn't have, which "What She Loves You" had, and "I Want to Hold Your Hand" had. It had a new form of joy. Uh, the, the early Beatle music had capital J O Y, and um, it wasn't dour. It was uh, smiles. It was. Uh, a smi- they were smiling musicians and um, we all needed that. Mm-hmm. Still do more today in 2021 than ever. Well, there's, you know, there's speculation that the fact that they, they came and hit two months or three months after she was assassinated, yeah. the United States was in a, a terrible down yeah. mood. And all of a sudden the young kids get this refreshing thing that the parents hate, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it was Don't- magical. Don't doubt it for a second, Mick. I think the lineage from the assassination in November 63 to the Beatles on February the 4th, three months later uh, in New York, um, it, was, it was the perfect an- antidote to dark, as much light as you can bring into a dark place and uh, people look at it. Well, that's the thing is that not many people are aware of the fact that before Capitol Records picked them up, they were EMI in, in Great Britain. Yes. Capitol Records picked them up in... Uh, North America. However, before that, they were they were signed to Swan Records, in the United yeah. States, and released. Um, they released uh, two songs. One of she which loves Del, you. Del Shannon did one of them. He covered one of them, but yeah. and nothing happened. There's a, they were get, they got North American play before they hit Ed Sullivan months before, but nobody gave could care less. You know. Yeah. It wasn't until the the big machine hit and Murray the K, the big DJ in New York. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Saturation, man. Yeah. Inter- interesting and, they, and really it hasn't stopped since well, a lot of speculation on that too <laughs> is that brian epstein their, their manager signed so many bad deals that because they, they, it was unprecedented they they'd yeah. never gone through anything like this before yeah. so somebody says hey i'm gonna make beetle wigs okay great how much you want i'll take five percent okay so those people are still making money off beetle wigs because they signed yeah. away the rights the beetle yeah. signed the rights but that's perpetuated yeah. the myth because people keep making money off it yeah, I, re- I was reading an interesting thing last night in the Mark Lewinson book about um, Brian Epstein that I'd never heard or read before or thought about before. And it was about a hard day's night. 
And uh, they talked about how they got the script for A Hard Day's Night and how they picked uh, Owen, I think it's Owen Davies or Owen something, guy that wrote the script. And they had a lot to do with it. But they never said the word The Beatles in the movie The Hard Day's Night. The word was never spoken in the, in the film. And that was an idea that The Beatles had. And Mark Lewis went on to conclude, he's obviously the number one researcher of The Beatles to date. And he said that jo Brian Epstein got a lot of his direction from the Beatles, like he worked for them as opposed to the, when, like usually if the manager says make a crappy film, uh, the band would do it, like the day Clock Five did it, Herman Shermans did it, but the Beatles said, no, we're not making a crappy film, we're only gonna make a good film. And um, they understood the direction that this, that this unit should go in. Um, and Brian Epstein was wise enough to listen to the counsel of the genius that George uh, John and Paul were, you know. Well, he was routinely kicked out of the recording studio. I mean, he'd walk in, and I yeah. think John, John Lennon had a famous line like, "You go do your numbers, Brian, and we'll t we'll concentrate on the music. Like, get yeah. out of here." You know. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. I, I happened to see Hard Day's Night on one of these stations the other day, yeah. and of course, it's one of those things I would have not known a clue about when I was a kid when I first saw it because my sister brought me. I was just a toddler, and she brought me to see the. All I remember is girls screaming in the theater. Whenever the uh -huh. Beatles' faces would come on the screen, girls were screaming in a movie theater. Yep. And the hysteria was unbelievable. But there's John Lennon in that famous train scene. He's got a bottle of Coke. He opens yeah. it up and he goes like this yeah. and sniffs yeah. the Coke. You yeah. know, like sniffs it. And like nobody knew what he was doing back then. Nobody knew about cocaine, you know. Yeah. But he was already playing that that sort of bad boy thing in the background, like I'm I'm yeah. pulling one over on you. Yeah, well, I I think the beauty of the Beatles uh, is is really the balance of John's bravery, courage, honesty, directness out of the box, and Paul's completely in the box. And of course, Paul steps out of the box, and of course, John steps into the box. But as a rule, the balance that 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 dichotomy that they both brought is part of the genius of it all that Paul would never have done that because it would have upset his mom. Why? Well, I, I, yeah. And I, and I also maintain that, you know, uh, Paul lost his muse when John was shot. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to me, even though they were estranged, they, they like the, the reports are that they did rekindle their friendship before John died. And Paul's eternally grateful about that. But the fact is, is that they were writing songs across the water sort of thing where they knew that they were listening to each other. And so Paul would have, always have to prove to John that he still had it, and John would have to prove to Paul that he still had it. Actually, I, I, there's, a, there's a period of time I don't think John cared what Paul thought. I mean, the yeah. Plastic Ono Band is I a great agree. example of that. But, you know, Mick, there's a relationship that, that you have with the person that you love, your partner, your wife, your spouse. Uh, and then there's a relationship you have with, with your male friends that only men really understand. When you're connected deeply with a guy, um, like John and Paul were uh, on every level possible, uh, touring, sharing food, traveling, sharing women probably, um, writing songs. It creates such a depth that you can't imagine that when that's severed, it's like the most ugly of divorces, the most uh, riveting of losing a child, the, 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 the most imaginable pain, it's equal to that. And very hard for Paul to understand, and he retreated to to the Mulligan Tire and drank and 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 tooted and 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 um, smoked, I guess, because he couldn't deal with the fact that he was no longer with his bud. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it was it's a it's a beautiful love story in a way. Those two guys, and um, 
it's it, it's sad that it ended in 1980 because it would have they would have rekindled they would have written together i never saw the beatles getting back together but i always saw john and paul getting back together always i was reading the albert goldman book um the uh, the beatles his um biography on john lennon which was not a flattering picture however oh. i was yeah. right in the middle of the book when he's recording with the cheap trick guys because yeah. and he did it on the sly he had asked um uh oh, oh god Forgive me, but who's the person on that? Um, uh, the guy that Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas, thank you. And uh, he had talked to Jack Douglas, saying, "Hey, there's that band that kind of sounds like the Beatles." He said, "Yeah, Chief <laughs> Trick." He says, "He says, let's get them in." So he brought them in, and they played uh-huh. on three songs. "I'm Losing You," "Wheels," I think, "Watching the Wheels," and another one. And apparently, Yoko, because she was sort of the grand poob of the whole thing, getting him together. Mm-hmm with Jack, Richard, or Jack Douglas and all this stuff. She came in and said, who's this? She was listening to, this, to tracks. She said, who's this? She said, it's these cheap trick guys. I brought them in. It isn't great. She goes, I didn't, I didn't okay this. Erase it. Wow. So, so basically the story is, is that John had the studio musicians, which were great, you know, all the, all the guys that were hired, basically listen on headphones to what Cheap Trick had done and emulate it to the best of their abilities. But there were, and that, that's why Cheap Trick years later released those songs. They had copies of them and released the, the songs with John and them together. Oh, they're beautiful. I think they're wonderful. Yeah. I, pref- I do prefer the uh, the actual Double Fantasy, especially Double Fantasy stripped versions. But I totally like those. And I know you've had interaction with Cheap Trick in your travels too. And mm-hmm. um, they are an amazing band. There's so many people say throughout time, they're not the Beatles, you know. Yeah, well, that's, I was in the middle of that book. I was on the road in the Beatles show, Revolver, at the time, and we were in Winnipeg. And it was one of those things where I looked and I saw the Cheap Trick were in town doing a concert on the same night that we were playing this gigantic club. It was a big two-story club, huge, massive place. And it's just one of those things ran through my mind saying, gee, I wonder if they're going to come and see us. Not, and that's it. Then I went and we did our first act, and there was, a, I think, a half-hour break. So I t- took up all my video clothes, chest, you know, dressed in my civvies, and decided to walk to the crowd to see what's going on. And all of a sudden, Rick Nielsen walks up and goes, hey, hey, I want to meet you. He says, my name's Rick. I went, oh, yeah, I know who you are. He says, come here, come here. So he brings me over to the table, and there's Robin Zander sitting there. And Robin Zander says, um, he says, hey, man, we love your show. We go all over the world and see Beatles shows everywhere. You guys are the most authentic one we've ever heard. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable how good you guys are. I said, yeah. well, I said, you want to come backstage and meet the guys? He said, okay. So I brought him backstage mm-hmm. and they meet everybody. And they said, and I said, well, do you guys want to do our encore with us? They said, okay, sounds like fun. What are we going to do? I said, let's, I don't know, we'll make it up when we get up there. We all know Beatles songs. He said, okay, <laughs> cool. So they stayed backstage in our, our green room off the side of the stage. We played our whole second act. And here's the thing is that most people in the crowd didn't know they were there because they were sort of in the shadows off mm-hmm. by themselves watching us. So all of a sudden we come back on for encore and we went up and did two songs that we'd never done before. And Robin sang them, one of which was money. That's mm-hmm. what I want, which we, which was fun. And another one. And then, then that night me and Michael Sacoli and Robin Sander and Rick Nielsen sat up till four o'clock in the morning talking about stories. Well, of course the stories come around about John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And so they said, this is off the record. They said, when they were recording with John, they said it was pretty well known that John was not all as happy as the, he made it out in the press with Yoko. He knew, he knew that Yoko was out having an affair with his publicist. And when she would leave the studio, 
And of course, uh, this whole macrobiotic diet, et cetera, that she's got John on, apparently he had, you know, one of those old ashtrays mm-hmm. you know, that you unscrew the top, the stand-up yes, ashtrays, yeah. and it was hollow in the inside. He had a bottle of Jack Daniels stashed down there. So as soon as she would leave the studio, it'd be like, let's go boys. And it would be like party time. And, and so anyway, and so the story is, is that he was planning on re-recording some of these Beatles songs. He wasn't happy with strawberry fields. He even said to George Martin, he didn't like how it turned out. He wanted to redo it. So that was his whole thing. He wanted to launch Yoko on her way. Now I'm, this is what they're saying. I'm just sort of repeating. He wanted to, launch Yoko's career so that he could have his career back as a solo artist. And he, part of his game plan was to start redoing Beatles songs again. Yeah. I, I had a, a thought the other day, whether he would actually have done, she loves you in a live show. I was listening to, to she loves you. the Beatles. Oh, version. I love your version by the way. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much. One thing I just want to add to that story about John and Yoko is that a lot of the bitter songs that John wrote about Paul, um, with, of course, the climax being How Do You Sleep. John has said in interviews after the songs, hey, man, those songs were a lot about me, uh, not about Paul. And one of the lines in How Do You Sleep is, uh, jump when your mama says anything. And um, I'm sorry, what was the line again? Jump when your mama says anything. And he's referring to Linda, of course. And, um, you know, when you write songs, they always are a part of you're talking about yourself on some level this is as a uh, trump is always projecting you know when he says things they're really about him and i think john a lot of the times was he, he was lost man his whole life he seemed a little bit lost mm-hmm. when he was in the beatles he seemed found and when 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 he got into heavy drugs with um let it be and and and, and abby abby road he felt he found it there. You know, he wasn't contributing as much. Didn't seem as important. It became Paul's band. And I think if he would have gotten back with Paul, maybe he would have had a career that would have been, uh, not maybe, he would have had a phenomenal career. But he needed, we all need partners, Mick. Well, yeah, well, the first three years of the Beatles' career, John was predominantly the songwriter. He was the one that had the most hits. Yeah, More than Paul. Yeah, 80%. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to you. I want to. I want to talk to you. So, uh, so you go to you go back to England. You're living with your aunt. Yep. And what what happens? When do you start playing guitar, writing songs, etc.? Is that when you move to Vancouver or be- no, no. before? Um, okay. So I guess I should follow the chronology. Chronolo- chronology, if that's the right word. Um, I am. Um, Stayed in England until I was 15, so it's two years. I went to grammar school, two of the happiest years of my life. But I really missed my mom, really missed my dad. What really made them happy? Beatles. Kings, okay. Hollywood, and, and being stuff. away from Zimbabwe. Without any, yeah, and, your... and being away from races, being away from apartheid, and being away from danger, and being in my home, which, I, which this interview began with, Manchester. I love Manchester. I love Oasis. I love being around Manchester people. I feel at home there. When I'm back in Manchester, which I've been back, I don't know, 50 times in the last 50 years, I just feel like this is my soul. I'm a Manchester lad. So... Unfortunately, my aunt died when I was 15. So my mom took the opportunity to bring me back. So we didn't go back to Rhodesia. We went to South Africa this time and to Durban. And that was even worse. 
it was more racist. It was more, um, as a Jew, I, um, I can't handle racism. I can't handle um, uh, hatred. I, I just, it's not, it's not in me. And I just, the way they treated brown people, the way they treated black people, it, it, you can't imagine as you live in it. It's, it's like um, levels of, an, of, uh, of class, like there's a caste system. So I wanted the guitar. I wanted to play guitar. And my dad said, oh, you'll never stick with it. You'll never stick with it. You'll never stick. Went on for a long time, many, many months, if not years. And then one day, I don't know what happened, but he broke down and I got a guitar. And there's a picture that I sent you of me and Jeff with that guitar when I was oh, 15. Oh, uh, Charles, Charles can bring it up for us. I want to take a look at that. That's that guitar. And I thought, Nick, I don't know whether this makes any sense to anybody who's listening to this, but I thought you could just pick up the guitar and start playing, I want to hold your hand. I thought it was that simple, and I couldn't. I couldn't work out any song. I was totally not musical. I totally couldn't sing in key. I totally couldn't play the guitar. I couldn't do anything. So what did I do? I started writing songs. Interesting. So because you couldn't play their songs, you had to make up your own. Yeah. Interesting. And I, remem I remember <clears throat> being a kid, and I would because we lived in Durban, we didn't hear the Beatles or, or the Hollies or the Kings or the Who. We knew the song titles. I used to look at the hit parade in the newspaper. And I remember seeing my generation. And I remember seeing, um, uh, was that one by the Kings? Um, you Really Got Me. And I wrote a song called My Generation. And I wrote a song called You Really Got Me. And I told people this was the Who song. So I played My Generation, my song. And I said, oh, this is the Who song. I mean, dude, <laughs> terrible, isn't it? But I did it. Not really. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I believed it because I, I the song had legs. Ch Charles just said the same. He said, OMFG, same here. <laughs> so, I, by the way, I don't know if you were able to see it. You might have to swipe on your iPad. No, Charles I didn't see had, the picture. Did you see the picture? Now, yeah, who, who, is, who is Jeff in the picture? I had three best friends in South Africa, Jeff, Jeff, and Murray. And that's my best friend, Jeff. He's just sitting, that's my apartment building where I lived when I was a kid. And that, that's me playing, I think, C with my uh, $20 guitar. And that was the, I only knew C and G. And I think I worked out D. And I had a friend in the building who was in the top uh, Durban band. They were called the Deans. And he taught me some chords. And the first song he ever taught me was For Your Love by uh, the Yardbirds, which was written by Graham Gouldman, who, who became now a, my best friend. I know, brother. unbelievable. And that's the first song I learned was For Your Love, a song I've never liked. I don't like that song. So what does Jeff do now, by the way? Uh, Jeff is the um, general manager. He's retired now, but he was the general manager for 45 years of a mattress company. Wow. Never left South Africa. Isn't that great? He so, the okay. same, but he has no hair. Okay, so, okay. so we gotta, we got we to gotta move... So you get this guitar in South Africa. Yeah. Okay. So that's in South Africa. Yeah. Okay. And, but Jeff's a white guy, but he's obviously the racist thing. Does, no, does, he, 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 was does he feel the same as you with that? No, time, that no. The only one that felt the same as me was the other Jeff. And the only reason I felt the way I felt was because the other Jeff's father told me about it. Liberalism. If you're not told, you don't even think about it. If you live in um, um, Krakow, and there's a concentration camp down the road called Auschwitz. You don't think of it as a bad place if you're not told it's a bad place. It's so weird how the brain works. I, I was racist until I was 14. Interesting. Because never, you didn't understand. 
No, I thought it was the right. It made sense. My dad, my mom, both are racist. They both told me that uh, Africans were way below us. And I thought, well, it must be. Well, you know, shamefully, I mean, I was I was totally homophobic. You know, yeah, I was homophobic until I started working with homosexual people. And I went, yeah. what the hell am I worried about? <laughs> you know, what, like all of a sudden, I go, these are normal people. What the hell's the matter yeah. with me? And, yeah. and, and so I, I try to and I have so little patience for people that are still homophobic or are still racist and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And, you know, there's a term called woke. It's overused these days. But uh, so I'm not going to use it. <laughs> I shouldn't. But the thing is, I have to remember that I was that until I, my eyes opened up just because. They, they, their eyes haven't opened yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to. That everybody has their time. Hopefully, maybe they yeah. might go to their grave being that way, and that's a sad thing. Yeah. But, you know, you, it's it's a weird thing. Anyway, so let's let's get back. So how? So now, now you went to South Africa. Where'd you go from there? Back to now. Now I was a devout uh, anti-apartheid supporter. I was a devout. Uh, believer in moving out of this environment of of racism, and I began my campaign to get my family to move out of Africa, and we went to Canada, to Vancouver, because my dad had two brothers living there, and he was offered a job. So we packed up, um, we took what we could, which was mostly the suitcases, with the clothes in there, and took my guitar, the guitar you see in the picture, and we went to Vancouver, Canada when I was uh, in grade 11. I did three months in grade 11 when I was, I guess, 16. Okay. And what did your dad do when he got to Vancouver? He was a, a salesman. He sold um, cars and he became a kind of a crooked uh, Murray peasant style stockbroker. I see. So you, 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 there's no love lost with you and your dad. No, it's the truth. I love him madly. He's a great guy. Uh, he was a very nice man, but he was a gangster with a small G. No. Right. So, you know, he, he had no, he, he, he was, um, he, he, he took advantage of people like a lot of promoters. Um, I, I really don't like promoters like the Trumps and the, the people that just sell, sell, sell. And my dad was n nothing like that, but like that with a small L mm -hmm. and it was sad and went to his grave like that. Um, I, I've got stories that I'm not going to share here, but they're not, they're not happy stories. Now, did you, do you think that that's possibly why you had an aversion to actually being more intimately involved in the music business as a performer was the fact that you were having to deal with people like that? Oh, yeah. I left the music business after being in it for 18 months because of people like my dad. Yeah, I met them. I mean, I worked with the creme de la creme. I worked with Fred Allett Jr., who has been in the business, born. His dad wrote, um, sit right down and write myself a letter. His dad owned the whole Billy Holiday catalog. The guy was a multimillionaire, but he was a lowlife. Yeah. And he was my manager. And I just, I walked away from it. I just didn't. And where was, where was he based? New York. New York. Okay. So, okay. So we got a lot of ground to cover before we get yeah, there. Yeah, we haven't obviously. started yet. Yeah, so we, okay, so we spent so much time talking about the Beatles because we love doing that, but that's okay. <laughs> Everybody loves talking about the Beatles, right? Well, what else is there to talk about? It wasn't about Billy Phil. But there's always so Paul many, yeah. there's just so many micro stories within the stories of them, you know, it just keeps going and going and going because yeah. everybody was touched by them. Anyway, we're going to drift off into it again. So we got to get, so now you're in Vancouver. Yep. You're learning how to play guitar. This is, yep. uh, we're basically around 1967, Confederation year. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Great. 16 okay. years old. Okay, great. So now 
I, I want you to tell everybody the famous story of how you ended up at, at three Seville Row, Apple Records. Mm. Well, um, I don't really know how I found the courage to do it. I don't really know how I had the idea to do it, but I didn't spend days mulling it over or discussing it with my friends. I watched John and Paul on The Tonight Show on May the 14th, 1968, and they came out with their sports jackets on. They looked different than the mop tops. They looked older and cooler, and not my generation looked, looked like older. And they said, come to London, bring your songs, bring your poems, bring your movie scripts. There'll be nobody there in the gray suits, um, and we'll listen to them. And John Lennon said it was one of the most worst experiences he had doing that show because Joe Garagiola instead of Johnny Carson hosted, which is how Johnny Carson can be there, I don't know. And so I went. Three months later, I got on a plane. I saved my money. I worked at Budget Rent-A-Car to make the money. I was in um, Berkshire University. Um, I, I was in grade 12. I don't remember. But I got on the plane and I flew to London. And got off the plane. I went to Earl's Court, got myself a, a room, um, left the room, got on the tube, went to Three Savile Row, looked at it, couldn't believe I was there, went back to the hotel room, crashed because I was so tired from the long flight. The next morning, I went to Apple at 10 in the morning. I walked up the stairs with my little guitar, not scared, not nervous, didn't even really think what I was doing, how crazy to do this. And I walked up the stairs and I was telling Charles before we started Mick that sometimes memories you think are completely crystal clear, but who knows? So this is my memory, brother. This is, I, I, this is one of the most important days of my life and I did think about it a lot. This is my memory. So I'm walking down this long sort of hall and there's this desk, oversized oak table, desk, table, oversized, much too big. And there was a very young uh, uh, English girl, Cockney girl, maybe she was 17 or 18, sitting behind the desk. The desk was more or less empty. And she said, can I help you? And I said, I'm Barry Greenfield, which is how I thought of everything. I'm Barry Greenfield, and I'm here to meet John Lennon because he invited me when he was on The Tonight Show. And she got really nervous. <laughs> said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no. And she didn't know what to do because nobody else had come. <laughs> and <laughs> to my understanding, the only fool in the world that actually did. So I, she said, have a seat. So I went and sat, and there were these two church pews. I remember this really well. They were really long, obviously taken from a church, uh, facing each other in this very, very oversized uh, hallway. And I sat. And lo and behold, five minutes later, up the stairs comes um, John, followed a few steps behind by his, his wife. And... Um, He's dressed in black, and he had the black hat on. And I think it was the same that he wore in the Hey Jude album cover. I'm not sure, but I think it was. She was dressed in white, and he had this really nice walk, and he looked like John Lennon. He looked smaller than I thought. Like, you always hear about famous people, except for you, Mick. You look so much taller. Um, <laughs> and he said, um, I said, hello, Mr. Lennon, which is exactly what Mark David Chapman said to him. And he said, hello, and he smiled at me with just a smile that just melted me. And then Yoko walked by, didn't say anything. And then they walked up into a room where I believe Alan Klein was sitting. I'm not really sure, but I think it was. And Alan, Alan Klein was the Beatles manager at that time for people who don't know. 
just just began and they've been in Apple for less than 10 days. And the, 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 other, the other beautiful part of this story is the McGree picture of the Apple cut in half, which was, I don't know, uh, eight feet by eight feet, 10 feet by 10 feet, a thousand feet by a thousand feet. And a huge picture of this apple was on the floor behind her. It hadn't even been hung yet. Wow. hadn't even hung the picture of the apple. It was still on the floor. I, I remember that. I thought, Jesus, I must be early. They didn't hung the pictures yet. <laughs> and then I'm sitting there and this dude comes out. And this is the part of the story where I'm not sure. I've always thought it was Derek Taylor because looking at pictures of Derek Taylor, but I don't really remember. And this dude comes over and he was in his mid-20s and he goes down on his knees and he says, hello, how can I help you? And I said, well, I've come to play to give John my songs. He invited me from Canada. He said, well, John's kind of busy today. Can you leave a cassette? And I guess I was freaked. I didn't have a cassette. I said, I, I don't have a cassette. I've never recorded a cassette. I've never recorded any of my songs. And he said, well, how are you going to show them to John? And I picked up my guitar, the guitar you see in that picture in the plastic case. And he said, oh, and he thought for a second, and well, will you play them for me? And I thought it was really nice of him. And I said, I'd love to. And I wasn't scared. I uh, wasn't scared. I don't know why. And then we walked past John and I walked down these long hallways. Every room was empty, as far as I can remember, to one right in the back. And there was a white shag carpet that was really, really dirty. And there was nothing in the room. And we sat down on the floor, and I pulled out my guitar, and I played him 10 songs, and he just loved them. And do you want me to go on? Please, please go. Okay, yeah. so he just loved the songs, and he said... These are beautiful songs, Barry. These are great. Um, can you come back tomorrow? I want to speak to John. And so I put my guitar back in my case. And I sort of remember getting really nervous then because I didn't know quite, I wasn't really expecting anything. And so I go down the stairs and I go into the street. And the first thing I do is I go to a payphone. And in those days in London, it's hard to believe children, but you could put a shilling in the play foam. How much is a shilling, phone, by the way? Uh, 10 cents. Okay. And you could say, um, I'd like to phone collect to Canada. And they would phone collect. Your mom would answer. My mom would say, hello. And we have a collect call from your son, Barry. We have seven charges. And she would say yes. And I said, mama, I, I just was at Apple and they really loved my songs. And my mom, God bless her soul, she said, well, you write very good songs, Barry. And I thought that was beautiful. I remember uh, saying that. Well, you write very good songs, Barry. She always loves Sweet America best, as does my wife. And um, You'd actually written Sweet America back then? Nope. I wrote that for 10CC a couple of years later. Oh, okay. Okay, let's, my, my let's, get, to that. let's get to that. Okay. So I um, then went back the next day, and this dude, who I think was Derek Taylor, the publicist uh, walked me to EMI, Manchester Square, 10 minute walk. We talked about the Beatles, we talked about Apple. It was really interesting. He wanted my opinion of the songs. He wanted my opinion of um, the Beatles. He wanted my opinion because I guess I was a regular guy. And I can't remember what I said, but it was obviously positive. Now, who and is this guy? Derek Taylor. He was the publicist. Oh, so you, so, oh, so you talked. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, it, makes sense, that, it makes sense that it would be Derek Taylor. It yeah, does, because he, ran, he ran the Apple organization. So. Yeah, and there wasn't many people there. It wasn't like there was hundreds of people around. There was, like, no one. 
Yeah. There was no one there. There was John Yoko. Um, that dude, I think was Alan Klein, who's an old guy smoking a pipe, a Galois cigarette, I guess. And then there was the young lady behind the reception desk. And I didn't think I saw anybody else but this Gary Taylor guy. Apple had just opened. They hadn't done any hiring yet. They had just moved in through some There was no furniture. It was it was like an, a, a vacant office building. And the only thing that made it appear to be the Beatles was John Lennon was there and the picture of the apple on the floor. Right. So I played, I walked into Ardmore and Beachwood at Manchester Square. Now Manchester Square is where the Beatles shot the Please Please Me album cover, where the railing is, and the blue greatest hits, and the red greatest hits. Right. So I stood at that railing and I said to Derek, is this the railing? He said, yeah, that's the railing. And I stood there and I stood second from the end and I, I, I stood there for as long as they'd let me. And then we go into this office with the head of Ardmore and Beachwood. And he said, play me your songs. He made me a cup of tea. Remember that? Drank the tea with no milk. And then I played him my songs. And then he said, let's go downstairs and record Love is for the Young and Old and With This New Girl. And I go downstairs into the bowels of EMI. Never recorded a song in my life. I'm sitting on a wooden stool. I can play my songs really now, well. Now, this isn't EMI Apple. This is EMI demo studio in their office building. In the EMI head office in Manchester Square, London W1, I think it is. Uh, okay, great. Okay. It, it was the famous EMI where um, Cliff Richards, they're all on that label. Because a lot of people really don't realize that the, the famous Abbey Road Studios was actually EMI Studios. It became yes. Abbey Road after the Beatles called their album Abbey Road. Because the Beatles were at EMI. They were two of the signs, like all Correct. the big bands. Correct. Uh, the Hollies were in EMI, all the big bands. So I um, played, recorded two songs with this, with this new girl and... I was too young and old. It took me a long time to do it, to get them right. It was engine. It was produced by Larry Page from Page One Records, and the Trogs were there. God knows why the Trogs were there, but the Trogs were there. And Reg Presley from the Trogs told me he loved my music, and I didn't care. And <laughs> then I walked. The very out. first song I ever learned was by the Trogs. Love is all around. <laughs> it's yeah. a great song. Yeah, he's a talented man. With the Trogs, you know. Uh, so he he. I'm very judgmental, I guess, or opinionated. So he, he, um, he said to me, um, John wants to release these, this song as a single, Love is for the Young and Old, with this new girl, Love is for the Young and Old being the A-side. And if it does well, they want to do an LP with Apple. And I, there was no business discussion. It was just the way Apple did stuff, you know, by the seat of their pants. And it just, like, it was like, when if you if you imagine you're you're doing something and then somebody says, "Will you marry me?" It's like, what? This is too quick. I, I, I don't I don't want to make a record. I I, I want to sing. I want to write songs. I I don't want to be singing. I I can't sing. And I said, I don't sing. He said, Oh, Barry, you sing really well. And I said, You know, let me think about it. So I went home, which is London, Earl's Court, and I hardly slept and I walked around all day and I went back the next day to Chris Webb at Arbor Beachwood and I said, hey man, I've given this some thought. It's just not for me. I, I don't have the, the backbone. I don't have, I can't play the guitar. I think it's just a suicide rap. I, I think I shouldn't do this. I think take these songs and get somebody else to sing them because I don't want to do it. I didn't come here for that. I came here to be a Tim Penale songwriter. I don't, I don't want to be... Um, a singer. I don't, I don't want women. I don't want any of that stuff. I just want to sit at home and write songs and get an education and be a regular Joe. Right. And, um, 
He was really nice about it, Mick. He, he was really nice. He said, oh, yeah, I, I can get that. Well, Barry, you're a really great songwriter. We're here if you ever change your mind. Uh, don't worry, I'll speak to John about it. I'm sure he'll understand. God bless. And that was the end of it. Came wow. And you, and you went back to Vancouver. Both of those songs were recorded by Nori Paramore as instrumentals. And Nori Paramore was the biggest band leader in England. He was the guy that produced Cliff Richard and the Shadows. And he had a big band, sort of like, um, I don't know like who, but like a band with 20 people, 30 people. They played instrumentals. And they both were recorded. And I think it went top 40 or something in England. So what was and the deal? Did you actually sign something for that? Or yeah, did I signed just... with Auburn and Beachwood. Okay, and so so you were paid for that? Yeah, I got money. I got wow. checks. For, not big checks, but they were big checks to me, a couple of hundred quid, you know, it wasn't bad. Wow, isn't that amazing? Every, every time I tried something, it worked. Every time, when I contacted you, it worked. When I phoned John Shields in Victoria to meet me for lunch or whatever we did, a coffee, I don't know what it was, lunch, I guess, it worked. Like, I... I don't, I, I kind of know where I'm going with in my boat. I kind of know where the islands are. I kind of have loved my life because I've not wasted it. Hmm. I love yeah. that experience at Apple. It changed my life. It was a really cool thing to do. And, and it doesn't matter that I wasn't on Apple Records. So what? Who the hell wants to be James Taylor? Not me. Interesting. I'm interested. Don't want to be a rock star. It doesn't interest me. And who knows? It might have gone nowhere as well. You don't know. But love is for the young and old, Mick was a really good song. And I'll just add one little side note. One thing, Graham Goulman and I are just as close as you and I are. And Graham, who wrote Bus Stop, Things You Do For Love, I'm Not In Love, No Milk Today, and dozens of other Things You Do For Love. Uh, good morning, Judge. Heartful of you know, soul, right? Heartful of soul. Even the, you, know, yeah. you know something, Greenfield? You can pick songs. And I can. I've always been able to know a song that had legs. And Love is for the Young and Old, which I cannot play today. Um, James Anstey has a copy of it, but I can't get it from him. Um, uh, is a really uh, good song. Was a really good song, in my memory. Mm. Yeah, talked a lot. Hope I haven't talked too much. No, God, no, 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 no. This is absolutely fascinating. You've got everybody riveted. I'm seeing comments here going, oh, wow, oh, wow. So, no, please open up. This is, this is fantastic stuff. This is what needs to be told. So, uh, let's go back. So, now you go back to Vancouver. What do you do then? You've just turned down a contract with the Beatles company. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mick, it, I never went around and told people. It wasn't like it was a big deal to me. It, I didn't. It, 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 it only years later, in hindsight, when I saw what happened with Apple, with James Taylor and Mary Hopkins and Jackie Lomax and Hey Jude, it's never, ever seemed like the wrong decision. Never. So but, what did yeah. your friends say in Vancouver? when You, you must have told them the stories. There must I don't have been people going, really? And I'm sure they said, fuck. What the fuck? Yeah. What wow. else would you say? Right? You met John Lennon? And I, yeah. You know, um, it just, Nick, you got to follow your heart in this world. you got to listen to it. If your heart's saying one thing, you don't listen to it. You're a fool, man. Oh, interesting. interesting. I think. So, well, you're definitely a heart person. I mean, we talk about that a lot. A lot of your our conversations are quite deep and spiritual and, you know. Yeah. And, spir and spiritual, yes, it's spiritual from not, not a, a, a God level, spiritual from yeah. an actual human level. Hey, Mick. Last three days, I sent you a song called The Beautiful Band. Right. A song I wrote about <laughs> our favorite subject. And it took me 
an hour to write, 45 minutes to write, right? I think it's really hard to write great songs when you're famous. I think it's really hard for Phil Collins to write a song after Another Day in Paradise. I think it's really hard for Bob Geldof to write a song after I Don't Like Mondays. I think it's really hard. Somehow I can write songs that I consider to be as good at 70, which I am now, as when I was 22, 17. I mean, Cat Stevens writes really good songs, but they're not as good as Teeth the Tillerman. They're not as good as Teeth and the Firecat. When you've had that enormous fame, you can't seem to find a place in your soul because your soul has been changed because people have told you, oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so handsome. Oh, you're so good in bed. Oh, you've got so much money. Oh, pay for this, pay for that. You never know who your friends are, you know? And I think I've been blessed by turning down Apple. I'm not saying it would have turned into gold. I don't know and I don't care, but I don't think it would have worked. Here's those. That, that makes me reflect on something. I've often said I'm, I'm grateful being a never was as opposed to a has been. <laughs> because it's true. I'm, yeah, I'm, because I'm always trying to achieve something that I haven't attained yet. That those people have already attained it and they're trying to get it back. That's, ha- that's a harder step. Well, Mick, you and I have done some songs in the last year and a half. Uh, we've done maybe 12 songs and maybe three of them. Cupid's Arrow, um, Hanging On To You, um, I've got a very soft spot for I Wish Obama Was There here. Um, we've done some gems and it, because we were never was. And yeah. uh, I, I think something happens to you when you're, a, when, even take a guy like James Blunt. You know, he wrote that beautiful song called 1985 about how writing Beautiful, the song Beautiful, destroyed him. He could never write a song that anyone would listen to again. And it's a really interesting song for your listeners and, and viewers to to search out 1985 by James Blunt. It's on an album from 2018. And it talks about what happens when you write a hit song. And you look at Cat Stevens who wrote Pop Star. I don't want to be a pop star. You know, Cat Stevens played it right. He played it right. He was on the road to find out. He was um, always looking for a bigger thing than stardom. And I, I think Cat Stevens is whew, something special as mm. a human being. As yeah. a human being. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I have respect with where he went, you know, against all odds, much like, much like Muhammad Ali, actually. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. You know, um, Laurie, Laurie and I have been watching a, a series of movies about Gloria Steinem recently. And last night we watched the, 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 the Three Glorias, I think it's called. And it's not as good as the um, Mrs. America one series, but Gloria Steinem is an icon to me. The way she handled her life, uh, the way she tried to refuse the stardom, the way she throws about the big people, the women's movement, not about her. Um, so Gloria Steinem is another icon to me. Um, the women's movement has been incredibly important to me as well mm-hmm. because it's um, um, the, probably the best song I ever wrote was a song called Free the Lady, which is about my mom. And uh, it's a song I wrote in 1968, and um, it's on the Blue Sky record, the early years record. And, um, that song still has legs. I'm going to re- resurrect that song. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Okay, so now you've gone back to Vancouver. Yep. But there's, there's a whole other chapter that opens up a couple of years later, is it? Yeah, 10 CC so, and so what? So, okay, so yeah. okay, so how the hell does all that happen? Let's get to the, let's get onto that story. So you're back in Vancouver, and what are you doing with yourself? Have you gone, have you gone to college? Uh, I I heard that at one time you wanted to study law. 
I went, yeah, I started law school and walked out of it. Didn't like the people in the classroom with me. I thought that I don't like lawyers. Um, hey, <laughs> lawyers, I don't like you. Um, I don't think that lawyers, um, oh, obviously this isn't true for all lawyers. I mean, there's obviously uh, lawyers that help people. But money, uh, the, the fact we have lawyers and, and, and people of medicine on such pedestals really irritates me. I think plumbers and electricians and grandmothers and um, cab drivers are, are important people and record producers and John Shields. They're all important people. Um, the lawyers irritate me. And I looked around the room and just thought, these guys aren't me. I, I can't spend three years with these people. So I walked away and recorded New York's first night almost the next day at Tom Nookot's studio. Really? Yeah. And New York's is closed tonight. Tell the story of that, because that song was incredibly, like, it, it got successful. And the Bo Diddley connection and yeah, all that? Yeah, bizarre. Holy, let's, uh, let's hear that stuff. Well, if you don't mind, I'll tell you how it came about. This is an interesting story, and it's true. Sure. This, this is much clearer to me than some of the earlier stories. But I was working at the Bay on Thursday nights, Friday nights, and all day Saturday in the the very first teenage department at the department store. Prior to this, there was children's and adults. So in this year, which was, I guess, 1970 or 1969, they decided to open a teen department, which catered to people between the ages, let's say, I don't know, 15 and 22 or something. So I worked in that department and it was called Vibrations. So I went home one night and I wrote a, a jingle for them. And I went up to the general manager of the Bay and I said, I've written a jingle for the department. And he said, what? And I said, I've written a jingle for the department. And he said, okay. So I pulled up my guitar and I said, woo, that's really, really good. How long will it take you to, how much will it cost me to make that a jingle into a 60 second piece for the radio? And I said, 600 bucks. And I could have said $4,000, I could have said 80. I had no idea, 600 bucks, okay. Mary, write Mr. Greenfield or Barry a check out for 600 bucks. So I get a check 600 bucks, a huge amount of money. And I found out the best studio in town was Tom Northcott in 12th and years, Studio 3. So I probably get the bus to Studio 3 with my guitar. There's Tom Northcott. I recognize him from being Tom Northcott. And I said, um, I have uh, 600 bucks. I'd like to make a jingle. Okay. So in the studio, hanging around, was a guy called, you might know this guy, plays in Trooper, and in those days it was called Applejack. His name is Smith. Smithy. Oh, Brian Smith, yeah. Smitty. Right, you know him? Really good friend, yeah. Well, tell Smitty, he's the guy that played on New York's Post Night, never paid. And Are he's you the serious? Guy, I'm 100% serious. And he's the guy. Oh, my God, I was just talking to him the other day. Well, tell him I love him, and I really respect him. Oh, he's him. a lovely guy. And I, I, I'm not sure, I think I offered to pay him, and he said no. I, I think he thought I was just a kid. And so he, he was there, and um, Ken Lundgren, who was a bass player I knew, was there, and we knocked off the jingle in whatever. Vibrations is my home, I go there. Vibrations is my place, I go there. I love Vibrations. It was a minute long. I timed it. It had a 40-second bed in the middle where we played instruments, my, mostly my guitar and Smith doing something. And then I went to Tom Northcott, and I said, okay, he said, he said, well, you've got $450 left. <laughs> and I said, oh, huh. I didn't spend it all. He said, no. I said, okay, guys, would you help me? And Smith said, yeah. And Ken said, yeah. And so we went into the studio, back in the studio, and I had two songs ready, New York's Close Tonight and a song called John Roll On. 
So we did Negro's Close tonight in two takes. I played the acoustic guitar, Smith played the guitar, which has become an iconic sound to me, and Ken played the bass, and I played a hand drum that was broken. So that's why I had the heartbeat, boom, boom, boom. Uh, whoever the engineer was, engineered it, and within 20 minutes, New York closed, now it's finished. We spent the next three hours doing John Roland, and that was going to be the A-side. And that was the end of it. And Ken Lundgren, who was the bass player, worked for the province. He, he was the Tom Harrison before Tom Harrison. And the province was a local, is a local newspaper in Vancouver. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. So he, he was reviewing Bo Diddley. So he went to Bo Diddley to do an interview after Bo Diddley's show. I believe it was at the Commodore, but it might not have been the subway. I don't really know. And he said, hey, can I play you this song about New York? Played it for Bo Diddley. Now, Bo Diddley is not folk music. I mean, I guess you could call that ethnic blues folky, but you wouldn't think, right? But he thought, oh, this is really great. Can I have a copy of that? So Ken gave him the cassette because we had others. And the next thing you know, my phone is ringing and I've got a phone call from this dude in New York, Fred Allert, A-L-A-H-L-E-R-T, Jr. And he's got a New York accent and he says, uh, Barry Greenfield, this is Fred Allert in New York. I'm um, the owner of Blue Seas Music. We publish Baccarat and David. And I have a third on music and I have a Thursday music. And I think your song is the number one song. And I said, what song? He said, New York is closed tonight. I said, great, get someone to sing it. And he said, I want you to sing it. And I said, no. And it went on for six months, man. He'd phone me every month and beg me to sing the song. And I said, no. One day he phoned me six months later from this first phone call. He phones me up and he says, I'm in San Francisco on Thursday. Will you come down and meet me? And I said, well, I don't have any money to fly to San Francisco. He said, I will get you the ticket. Just go to Air Canada, give me your name, show them your passport, and they'll have a ticket waiting for you. I'll have a limo waiting for you at the airport. Get in the limo, and they'll bring you to a restaurant in Fisherman's Wharf, and you'll recognize me because I'll be waiting for you. Just ask for Fred. So I got on the plane the next day, went to San Francisco the next day, and I really liked him. And I signed the contract there. And he signed me to Laurie Records, L-A-U-R-I-E, out of, I think it was out of somewhere in the east, Detroit or somewhere like that. Yeah, we've got pictures of all this, the Laurie, yeah. the Laurie Leck record label. Yeah. And, uh, and it came out and it went to number one in Canada forever. And Daryl Burlingham told me it was the most played record in Canada in 1972. Yeah, and I am, um, I... famous time, uh, Canada's famous DJ, Daryl B. He's, he broke yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, he also was the, part, the reason taking care of business exists. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. He's one that, he was the one that came up in the line taking care of business. He didn't he, realize it, but he did. And he's, he's the one that told me New York's Close now is the most played song on Canadian radio that year. So you should be very proud of that, Barry. That's an achievement only one person achieves every year. And it got played so much, Mick, because of Canada content. I mean, the reason Terry Jacks exists, he sucks, is because of Canadian content. <laughs> The reason Burton Cummings gets so much airplay and he doesn't suck, he's okay, is because of Canadian content. I mean, I got so sick of Gordon Lightfoot, so sick of Anne Murray, so sick of Randy, so sick of those guys. Overplayed, overplayed. And it's happened to the Beatles over the years. And it's happened to Led Zeppelin over the years. 
too much play, right? It, it takes away some of the originality, some of the spark. And so Nearest Close Night fit in a 33% section, written by a Canadian, recorded in Canada, Canadian content. Mm. So and it was a crappy, crappy record. It was done in two takes. It was really, really not a good sounding record, but it had a je ne sais quoi about it, an honesty about it. Mm-hmm. So it went to number one, and Fred Allen then takes the song on Laurie Records to RCA and negotiates a three-year contract, three-LP contract with RCA Records and um, gets 20 grand. And the deal I had with Fred Allen was every penny I got, he got 50% of it. Plus, he got all the publishing. So oh, wow. I got 10 grand. Now, 10 grand to me uh, was a lot of money. And it still is. But it was. And um, he then flew me down to L.A. where I was interviewed by three. I, I, I was interviewed. I interviewed three producers to produce my first album. And I, I introduced Paul Rothschild from The Doors, who was too spaced out for me. Another guy who I don't remember, really famous, I don't remember who it was. And the third guy was a really overweight by maybe 100 pounds, five foot two inches, never made a record in his life. The staff producer at RCA, David Kirschenbaum. And I really liked Kirschenbaum. I liked his softness. I liked his heart. I liked the way he talked to me. I liked the way he loved his wife. We since divorced, but he loved his wife. I love people who love their wives. John Shields. I love that. And um, I picked him. And Fred said, how could you pick him over Paul Rothschild? And I said, I think Paul Rothschild is a fantastic record producer, but I doesn't, he doesn't really listen to me. He just talked to me. And I think I want to be part of the record. If I'm going to take this huge step that I've refused, I want to be co-producer. I, want to, I know what I want. I don't want to be told how to do it. And Kirschenbaum, to, the, to his, his degree, let me have a big input. And so we made this LP built around New York's clothes tonight with the best players in America. It's called Double Scale Players. And it was probably some of the finest three weeks of my life. All those in New York clothes. So who are, the, who are the players that were on that album? Did you have some good ones? Yes, like na- name ones? <laughs> well, there was the best. They were not only the best in name, they were the best players. They just... The only equals I played with are the guys in Nashville in the last six or eight years and Mick DeLavia, a guy <laughs> who I know in Victoria. <laughs> but there was Larry Carlton on guitar. And Larry Carlton had played on every single session from... Oh, he's, he's the, the best. Way. He's the best. amazing. He, he was a guy that I loved the most. He was the, the best. Nice guy. Super. And he came in with a little sort of caravan and his, his roadie opened the doors and it was like... I know 30 guitars in the caravan and he picked one out. And the way Larry did it, which might really appeal to you, Mick, he sat on a chair across from me and he said, play me the song. So I played him the song in my primitive way, the way I play it for you. Like I remember with Quiet Canadians, how we started off our journey. And he just sort of copied my style. He sort of copied it the way I, if I used my fingers, he used my, my fingers. If I strummed, he strummed. He, if I used a capo, the capo. And the other thing that's about Blue Sky is I always had my guitar, my guitar tuned down half a tone. So the whole album is down half a tone. Everybody had to do that. And um, Larry Carlton learned the song. And before we actually, and the other players, then I'll get to the arranger in a second. Larry Carlton, Dean Park's second guitar. Was wow. Really good. 
Joe These are all like Steely Dan people. Yeah, yeah, they all played on Steely Dan. Joe Osborne, who played that riff in um, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, was yeah. with the Wrecking Crew. Joe Osborne on bass, he played on Simon and Garfunkel's. Yeah. Uh, Joe Osborne on bass, who was like just a rock. The bass player to me is the most important player around for my music. The drum, I had two drummers because the one guy's the conflicts. Listen to the two drummers, completely different characters. We picked the right one for the right song. Um, I had Russ Kunkel from James Taylor, oh Carol King's band, playing um, on three or four of the songs. And on the other seven songs, or six songs, I can't remember on the album, I guess it was 10, was um, Jim Gordon, who was from Derek and the Dominoes, who wow. wrote Layla with Clapton, who eventually went to prison and was murdered in prison. He was a peculiar guy. Yeah. He was six foot six inches tall. And just like Doris Maxwell and just like Jerry Adolph, hit the drums 10% too hard. Right. Just listen to me. I'm in charge of this room. Yeah. And Russ Kunkel was the opposite. He was genteel, sensitive, subtle, and they both played a role. And on New York's Close Night, with on the RCA version, which had an instrumental tag that I, that I stole from Ram, uh, Jim Gordon flies through that. He was the right guy. St the stole reason, from Ram in what way? The Paul McCartney album. You yeah, mean. the way McCartney ends songs and he goes, I'm not going to do it because I embarrass myself. But when he could, he would do these screams. Like, backseat of my car, he comes back with an instrumental thing. I see. I, I tag him. He does, yeah, he does two chords, usually D and C, he goes up and down. Right. And, he goes, and I just love that. Paul McCartney does the same thing over and over again. He does descending bass lines and ascending vocal lines. He does the same things in so many of his songs, like 1985, where he goes to, to a stop and then starts again. I think if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Yeah. So I stole that from Paul McCartney. And um, the reason that album is so great is because of two people. David Kirschenbaum, who became one of the best producers in music history, got 75 Grammys, don't know how many gold records, did Cat Stevens, Bob Dylan, Super Tramp, all of Tracy Chapman, all of Joe Jackson. I was the first record he ever did. I was the guy who gave him the break. I was wow. the guy that hired him. And Kirschenbaum told me that on the phone 10 years ago. And the other reason was Jimmy Haskell. Jimmy Haskell was the greatest arranger ever. Um, Bruce Springsteen's finest album to me is the one he did two ago, Western Stars. And it's an homage to Jimmy Webb and that late 60s music. And that's Jimmy Haskell, where he arranged stuff. So I flew to L.A. before I did this LP, and I lived in Jimmy Haskell's house for three days with him and his wife. And we spent three days arranging these 10 songs on Fender Rhodes. So when the boys came to play, we sat in a circle. I didn't play. I sat in the middle with a microphone, and they were circled around me in Studio B in RCA, Grand Piano, Larry Nettle on Grand Piano, the guy from Red who played Bridge Over Total Water. Oh, yeah, Nettle. Playing the, oh, man. Playing the Grand Unbelievable. Piano. Joe, uh, Jim Gordon on drums to my left. Larry Cotton looking at me, so I was always singing to Larry. Dean Parks when he was needed, and a guy called Joe Estes. I think that was his name. His last name was Estes anyway, on percussion. And we played it all live. The only overdubs we did were lead guitar and background vocals, which we used. Mary Clayton, the one from Gimme Shelter. Right. And right. another woman. She was, she was pregnant when she sang that. Yeah, well, she wasn't pregnant with singing mine. She was <laughs> hot and she was, oh, God. Oh. oh, it was incredible to hear these, what I call, you know, bedroom songs. I'd sit on my single bed. 
play, writing these songs and then hear this band bring them colors and rainbows and hues and, and uh, make them so much better than they actually were, although they couldn't be anything without the nucleus, but they colored them mm-hmm. all because of New York Coast Night. Well, Mark, Mark LaFrance was on this show, and of course, he was a big advocator of neighboring rights, and that's one of the main things, the neighboring rights. Are you familiar with that? Absolutely not, no. Okay, neighboring rights, you know how a song gets played on the radio, and the record company makes money, the writer makes money, the publisher makes money, yada, yada. And the mechanicals are sales, which don't exist anymore, really. But Mark lobbied for something in Canada that was recognized all over the world, except for commercial radio in the USA. Uh, which may turn around now, you know, with, with the new uh, president coming in, with Biden coming in. But anyway, getting back to the story, neighboring rights, neighboring rights is a, uh, basically it's a royalty for the people who played on the song. So rather than just make their, so like, I mean, what's his name? Uh, you know, uh, Norman Durkee made, I think it was like $60 or $70 playing piano and taking care of business. That was, and he walked out. That's all he made off that song. Now, with neighboring rights, it, like Mark is collecting big checks now because it, it, it wasn't accepted by commercial radio. I got to go on in the United States, but it was accepted by digital radio. So when digital radio hit and it hit in a big way, look at Howard Stern. He's still the biggest radio show in town and he's not on commercial radio at all. Yeah. And so Mark is making a pile of money yes. now as a session singer player and and you just said why those you, you took those bedrooms they take those bedroom songs and that nucleus of a great idea and yeah. make it into this majesty yeah. you know yeah. it's the, the you can't understate how important great musicians are on a song well i'm a financial planner and have been for 42 years and you learn when you do financial planning in a corporate environment that you always deal with the guy or the lady who signs the checks. You deal with the, the head. In this case, it was the guy who wrote the song, Barry Greenfield. But the corporation is dick without the key people, without the controller, without the general manager, without the product manager, without the people, that the, the HR people. So your corporation is only as good as the nest. And yes. your song is only as good or as shit you know, people say, oh, McCartney was the most talented Beatle. Bullshit. The four of them. Yeah. The, the, the group. It's the group. Mick and Barry working together. It's a team effort. It's, it's like um, you're as good as your weakest link and you're as strong as your unit and as your trust. And even though everyone has a veto, everyone also should be open to listening to the other person's thinking because – it makes it stronger when there's when the corporation has people in a boardroom chatting up. And Marco Franz is 100% right. Sign me up, Mark. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that uh, we've, we've touched on this with our writing. There's times that you'll throw an idea at me and I'll go, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I do try it. And a lot of times uh, you're totally right. I yeah, didn't you, hear man. it. But when I did it, I go, oh, OK, that makes sense. OK. I can go with that. It's something I would have never thought of. But to, to automatically say no to an idea before you try it is absolute suicide when you're being creative. Yeah, and I think, um, again, back to our favorite subject, uh, I, one of my, when I listen to a lot of, especially John Lennon tracks, Post Beatles, I listen to Klaus Vollmann playing bass. It just saddens me when I think what Paul would have done to that song. Mm. Even if it's a song like Cold Turkey, where Klaus is playing the bass that I would play. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah. It's, Paul would have done Come Together on it. He would yeah. have done something. And, you know, 
Because he could get away with it with John. He could experiment with John. Uh, uh, With all the other people, John was like Grand Pooba. So they just sort of did what he said. And that takes away. And and McCartney, too. You know, McCartney's stuff has suffered because he doesn't have that friction. And the thing about John Lennon is that in the wooden fair, fate in 1957, when he was on that little uh, trolley, when he was playing the songs, Bebopalula, whatever, and he met Paul McCartney that day, he knew that he'd be better with someone equal than just being the King, King Booba. Yeah. And I think that never, ever, ever changed. And I think his solo music, even a great, perfect song like Number Nine Dream or Mind Games, put McCartney and Harrison on those songs. And, you know, people rave and go on and on and on about um, All Things Must Pass, which is one of the best Beatles solo albums ever. Put Paul and John in there and you get Taxman, you know, Put Paul and John in there instead of running the get something far more expressive like um, um, I want to tell you. It makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, what McCartney did with George's something is out of this world. Yeah. The bass lines in that song are just, yeah. and they're, they're as, as good as the song and as great as his guitar. That's one of his best guitar solos ever. It's a total departure from the melody. You can hum that guitar solo. Yeah. It's, it's, it's stunning the work on that. And I, I've got the tracks. I'm, there's another show I'm going to be doing on here with John, and it's going to be called Inside the Music. And we're, yeah. we're going inside all of these tracks that I've, I've been accumulating for years of the actual sessions. When you isolate what Ringo is playing on something, of course, there's overdubs. There's overdubs yeah. in the bridge. You're asking me, will my love grow? I don't What he's playing there is when you isolate it, you go, what the heck is going on? It sounds like a car crash, but when you put it in the song, it's unbelievably good. Yeah, there's a magical thing that happens with love, right? Whether it's you and your prominent other, personal other, wife, husband, the person that you love so much, that's so beautiful. And when you're in a room with the band, which of course you and I have never done, it's all been like this. Yeah, virtual. But, yeah. but when you're with, in the room with, the four, with those four dudes, the parts... This, the whole is bigger than the parts, and that's because the word love is just they love each other, and they those crazy things that Ringo would try. Paul might massage him a little bit, no, no, just a bit less Tom. And together, they came up with these brilliant, brilliant um, interludes that are evident in so much of their music. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's basically this this company that we have with Scott here that that's sort of that's been alluded to a few times. It, it's just it, there's a magic that's created when you get like-minded people together coming together because we're growing exponentially with this little enterprise yeah. and we love it. It's the same as me and you with our songwriting, how fast that came together. Yeah. And let's talk about Howard Stern for a second. You think it's just Howard Stern? Of course no, not. No, no, there's Robin Gibbons is huge. 30, yeah. And the smaller people, there's all kinds of people that make it happen. You know, the ones that pick him up in the morning in front of his apartment, you know, bring him to work. It's all integral. It's all essential. And um, the reason Howard Stern is the biggest voice in radio is because of Howard Stern plus, plus, plus. And the reason Blue Sky works so much is because of all of those guys in the room and Jimmy Haskell. I never, I never work with weak. I only want to work with people that are mic equal or more importantly, better because you shine when you're with better. You're forced to rise. Uh, if you're working with people that are better than you in their field, you have to play your A game. Otherwise, it's going to be evident you're not carrying your enough water. We have to go back a bit, just for a second. 
and I think this may have been when your relationship with Graham Goldman may have germinated. I'm not sure. But if you go back to back to 1970, because New York was closed, was what, 73? Uh, 72. 72. So two years earlier, you're in the UK yeah. and you meet up yeah. with Harvey Lisberg. Yeah. And he's, a, he's the manager of Herman's Hermits at 10CC. Is that how you meet Graham Goldman? Yes. Okay. So, but now 10CC, were they together in 70? I didn't hear about them until well, much later. No, they were called Hot Legs and they didn't include Graham. The very first record 10CC ever made in the studio was the 10CC Barry Greenfield song, Sweet America. It's the first time they ever got what? together. What? They recorded your song? Sweet America, they're the backup band. And Graham produced it. Is that right? Yeah, there's a different version. The one that that's the English version that was the BBC record of the week that 10CC did. Wow. They weren't called 10CC, they were called Hot Legs. Remember Neanderthal Man? I'm a Neanderthal man. Yeah. You're yeah. a Neanderthal girl. That's yeah. Hot Legs. Hot Legs is 10CC. So with that version, you sang it? Oh yeah. So by that time you were over yourself as a singer. You were you were you were singing songs and it wasn't bothering it wasn't bothering you anymore. I've never gotten over myself as a singer. <laughs> um, no, I um, I knew that. Um, I no, I just I think the, more, the thing was I just done more in my living room and for people I used to play at parties and I done a couple of gigs at one at the Evergreen Hall. I played at a, at a room on uh, in Commercial Drive, thirty minute sets with rock bands. You know, I'd done some shit. I I'd stretched my wings a bit so. Yeah, you're a little more I, confident. I, I, yeah. yeah, that's the word. I, and how how I did you meet Andrew Lloyd? How did you meet Andrew Lloyd Webber? Was that through him as well? No, Harvey Lisberg, who was my manager, was Andrew's manager. I see. Okay, he managed lots of people. And okay, so let's let's go into Graham Goldman, and and, and uh, I want you to tell our audience more about Graham. Some people know his legend. Some people mm -hmm. do not. Let it out. Well, I'll just begin my story about my brother, because he's my brother and I love him, like you do a brother, um, by saying of everybody that I work with in my life, the most talented person I've ever been in the room with is Graham Goldman. He's not only the best songwriter I've ever written with or worked with, he's the best guitar player I've ever worked with. He thinks really quick and he works really hard. And a lot of my work ethic I learned from sitting at his feet, watching him work. So the way the story goes is I flew to Manchester because I wanted to make a record in England. And I got on a bus, a couple decades. Well, no, bus. okay, what's the timeline of this? Where, where is, this, is this after New York is closed tonight? No, this is before New York is closed tonight. Okay, 68. okay. So I um, flew to Manchester to live with my auntie Sadie, no, no, she was dead, to live with another aunt. And, um, I got on a bus and I had my guitar. And for some reason, which again is angels, as Laurie would say, guardian angels, there was a girl on the bus. And I went to the girl and I said, do you know any musicians in Manchester? I'm here to meet musicians. And she said, oh, well, my boyfriend is Lal Cream and he's in a band. And I said, oh. Oh my uh, God. Can I, can I have his phone number? And she said, yeah. She gave me his phone number. Now, Lal Cream was, for one of the 
more evil description, the short guy in 10 cc. Yeah, Godfrey and Cream. Yeah. Godfrey and Cream. So I came home and I phoned Lal Cream on the phone. He answered the phone and he was pure nasty. He was furious that this girl gave me his phone number, furious that I'd have the audacity to phone him. Just, he was, I spent a lot of time with Lal over the next two years, next year and a half, and he was not a nice guy. The other three guys were really nice, but he was not. So I got the bad one, but it worked out anyway. He said, don't effing speak to me, you effing asshole. I have not time for this shit. Um, phone my manager. Oh, well, thank you so much, Lal. I thought always thought Lal was a stupid name. His name was Lawrence. And I said, thank you so much, Lal. <laughs> God, Lal. Suits him. Have you ever heard the song, I Want to Rule the World, The Biggest Man That Ever Ruled the World? They wrote that about Lal because that, that's who he was. He thought he was just God. Wow. And um, um, he gave me Harvey Lisberg's phone number. So I phoned Lisberg up. And again, an act of courage. The lady on the bus was an act of courage. Phoning Harvey Lisberg was an act of courage. And going over to Harvey Lisberg's house that night was an act of courage. And going to Apple was an act of courage. Phoning you was an act of courage. So he says to me, Harvey Lisberg says, um, Oh, well, I don't know. What do you got? I said, well, I'm a songwriter and I'd like to uh, talk to you about my songs. I'm looking for a publishing deal. He says, where do you live? And I told him, he says, well, that's about a 20 minute walk from my house. Uh, Come on over. And I said, when? He said, now. So I take my guitar and I walk the 20 minutes and I'm not very good at directions, but I do find the place and I knock on his very, very, very expensive house. And this sort of rotund accountant, because he was an accountant before he was a manager of Herman's Hermits and Burying the Dreamers, uh, opened the door. And he was quite kind, quite warm, quite friendly. He took me into this very small little study. And I pulled out my guitar and I started playing a song. And before I was 30 seconds into the song, he picks up the phone and he phones this person and he says, you're not going to believe it. This guy walked into my house five minutes ago and he sounds just like Cat Stevens. And I'd never heard of Cat Stevens. And this guy says, uh-huh. And he says, come on over and listen to him. And this guy says, I'm, I know this now, but I didn't know then. I'm on my way to the airport. I'm leaving for the airport in 10 minutes. I'm going to Mallorca on holiday. So Harvey says, well, stop it on your way to the airport. Only for 10 minutes. So guy puts down the phone and he says, Graham Goulbin's coming over to hear your song. And it could have been Paul McCartney to me. Grant Goldman is like the top of the food chain. He wrote Bus Stop, Look Through Any Window, No Milk Today, Evil Hearted Jew, Heart Full of Soul, um, East Side, West Side. Back Paul when he was like 14, 15. When he was like 14, yeah, 15. 15. He was amazing. Yeah. His mother went to the manager of the Hollies and said, you better hear my songs, my, my son's songs. And Graham Nash, um, uh, what's the guitar player's name? The guitar player. Three of them went over there. With Alan, Alan Clark, Graham Nash, and the guitar player, who I really liked a lot, forgot his name, um, thought Graham was a genius. Since Graham is a genius, he played Bus Stop, Look Through Any Window, and No Milk Today. And Graham said, I can't give you No Milk Today because I promised it to Peter Noon. Herman Sermon. So anyway, yeah. anyway, 15 minutes later, in walks this really tall guy with this heavy coat on, expensive, heavy uh, scarf on, and his wife, Susan, who I fell in love with, and um, says, What you got? And I played him two songs, three songs. And he says, all right, they're brilliant. Um, I'll be back in 10 days. We'll go in the studio with my friends. Uh, write me a single. And I said, what's a single? And he said, write me a song that's no longer than three minutes and 20 seconds and make sure it has a chorus and make sure it fits 
repetition and for the radio. And uh, okay, because I didn't care about singles. Mm-hmm. And phew, it was gone. Grant Goulden was gone. And Harvey Lisberg got paperwork drawn up and I signed a contract. And he agreed to pay me 25 pounds a week to sign with his Kennedy Street company. And I one day, a year and a half later or so, asked him why he paid me 25 pounds a week and paid Andrew Lloyd Webber 20 pounds a week. And he said to me, because Andrew asked for 20 and you asked for 25. (laughs) (laughs) What a lovely story. I love that. Mm. And um, so Graham came and we went into Strawberry North and I had never done this before. I played my song on the acoustic, Sweet America, which I wrote on my Aunt Sadie's couch. And uh, lo and behold, we had a, a song, and we did two songs, Sweet America, uh, with 10CC playing all the instruments, singing all the background vocals, and the B-side, Dorothy's Daughter. And it was incredible fun, really great fun. It was and so, so did it do okay for you in England? No, not really. Um, when it was released on Philips, which is a, a big label in, the, in Europe, um, it became the BBC record of the week. And that means that it's played every day from Monday to Friday at quarter to eight on BBC One with trumpets, fanfare, and Tony Blackman, who was the number one DJ in England. Ladies and gentlemen, the BBC record of the week this week is Barry Greenfield, Sweet America. And then he'd play the song. And the week before was Another Day by Paul McCartney. And the week after was The Carpenter's Ticket to Ride, two Beatle bookends. And both those songs went top 10. But my song didn't go top 10. It didn't do very much. Um, I think it went top 50, top 40. And I'm not Maybe disillusionment with the United States? You're never going to know. I mean, it was... Fold on your knees and cry. The line in the song has been the strongest line in the song and the one that's caused it the most turn off. So, I don't know. Wasn't meant to be. Wasn't really that good a record. Buffy St. Marie covered it. Yeah, it went number eight with her. Wow. In England. That was many years later, 1988. But um, it's the most covered song I've got. It's been covered by nine artists. And um, I don't think 10CC made a good record of it. I thought David Kirshenbaum's record was better. Um, and I thought the record I made with Chris Knoll uh, 10 years ago in Nashville was better. But um, I don't think the 10CC, 10CC weren't really gelled yet. I think it would have been a year later, it would have been a far better record. I don't think it was a very good record. And uh, why it made the BBC record of the week? I don't know if that was payola or reality. These things you never know. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, it could have been a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Now, the thing is with Graham Goldman, you talk about him as a brother. I mean, you became really close to him. I mean, his mother was like your mother. Yeah, she called me his second son. I moved in with Graham and his wife uh, shortly after that. I was living in a bedsit room and I lived with him for slightly over a year. And we wrote, I don't know, a dozen songs together. A couple of them got recorded. Um, we were just, just like you and me. It was like easy. Yeah. To this day, I mean, we spoke on the phone last week. I mean, he's 74. Um, he lives in London with his third wife. He's, a, he's, he's actually a lot, lot different. He's um, just, he's, he's five COVID. Um, thank God. Oh, he, but, he had COVID. Yeah, he had COVID. He oh got in Australia when, when 10CC were touring Australia, the same as uh, same time as uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, yeah. Right. Yeah, it only lasted for two days. He was very sick, only for two days. And then he got um, uh, lethargy, lasted 
for months and no appetite. So it did have a, uh, a long-term effect, but uh, he was sounding great last week. They don't talk about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a huge supporter of the Wizard Brothers. He's a huge supporter of me. He's a huge supporter of... Um, of, of uh, the Wizard Brothers our, is what we call our project, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Some Matt, people don't know the, who the Wizard Brothers are. So. Hey, well, it's just, uh, an, he's just there for me. I don't ask anything. I don't ask any favors. I uh, ingratiate myself inside. I think that's why it's lasted so long. I don't ask him to do this or do that. I just, he just says to me, uh, every year or two, I say, should I stop sending you shit? And he always says, send me everything. I want everything. And I'm sure I'm the only person he does that for, but I don't know. Yeah, he's, yeah. I, I, you forwarded his emails to me and they're always so gracious. I mean, he's yeah. for a guy who's had such an incredible career and who's so well-connected and so well-respected. I, I love that song that he wrote after he came off tour with Ringo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you sent yeah, that to me? We, Yes, I did, and we've talked about that. He really, that was a big thing for him, touring with Ringo. Like he's a, he's the same Beatle freak as you and me. And um, we've talked a bit about it, I guess, off the record. And um, he, he was really honored. That was not, I mean, I know Randy's played on those tours and Todd Rundgren and other people, but he really uh, was honored. And I don't, he just did a short tour. He did a bit of a few dates in Europe, a few more dates in the states. Uh, he says he's not going to do it again. I don't know whether he'd be invited back or not, but uh, he said Ringo was a true gentleman and uh, treated them all like kings. And uh, well, Ringo experience. seems to ha Ringo seems to have his favorite all star band now. Steve Lukather's yeah. always there. Yeah. Todd yeah. Rungwin's always there. Yeah. Um, um, oh, 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 God, the drummer. Oh, him and his brother. Um, his brother's not in it. His brother plays for Elton John now. Oh, what the mm -hmm. heck? Uh, Greg Bissonette. Yeah, right. and he's, he's, the, um, he's the drummer that plays alongside Ringo on those tours. And the, the, he seems to have basically his new Beatles that he tours with. And Good records for him. With. And McCartney's yeah. done the same thing with the band. Yes. Uh, after a while, you want to know what the guy's going to do before he does it. And you can't do that without continuous connection. Mm -hmm. One time you were about to do a Backland show about, I guess it was just pre-COVID. And I said, are you going to rehearse? And he said, you know what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing the same show for 20 years. Yeah. There you go. yeah. Same, the same, same 12 songs. You, know? yeah. you just do it in a different ways. Sometimes we do orchestra, sometimes we do six yeah. Yeah. sometimes we stand up. Well, before COVID, I did two shows a year for the last, uh, I know, 15 years, maybe a bit longer. I don't know. And I've never done the same show twice. I hardly do the same songs twice. I think every show you do, the audience deserves freshness and, uh, uh, a, a risk and I oh, do take absolutely. a risk oh you never slough no I mean it, the, 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 if it may, if I sounded like I'm, it, I didn't care that's not the same as knowing what I'm going to do of course I don't understand yeah, yeah. you're a total pro and stuff but I, I know that I spoke to um, the guy from Chilliwack I've forgotten his name Bill Henderson he said, yeah and he said they do the same songs every show um, and he says it's because of SoCan so he knows they're filling more forms I thought that sounded a little bit sort of I know that people want to hear those songs so I'm not going to comment on it but I like to hear deep catalogs. Oh, I, oh, I'd, I'd love to do some deeper cuts with Randy. Randy's written yeah. a lot of songs that I'd love to do that yeah. did, got airplay. They didn't, yeah. they're not, they're not, ain't seen nothing yet or taking care of business. But yeah. I mean, there's, there's some, like there's a song he had out called Shelter You years ago that I just love and I wish we would do it. You know, yeah. I, t tons of other songs. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Hey Jude and Let It Be deserve a rest in the McCartney songbook too, because you know it's just the same thing. I mean, you need to you need to do. I'd like to see him do an album of John songs. I would love that. You know, Paul sings John. I would love to hear hear him sing Imagine. I'd love to hear this hear him sing Love. I'd love to hear him sing. Um, um, in my life. I, I would love to hear Paul sing, Sean. I'd love to uh, produce it with you. I'd love to have it that shot. Right, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'll, I'll get on that right away. Uh, he's, yeah. my, he's my next call, by the way. This interview is going so well. We decided to split it into two episodes. So check out part two to continue enjoying more of this great content. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand. <laughs>